God, we take these next few moments and we give ourselves to you. We set aside our distractions and we just want to hear your voice. God, we thank you that this is a place of worship and a place where we can meet with you. So God, make us new this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So good morning to everybody here. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. And a very special greeting to all the kids here. It's so wonderful to have you in worship with us. And also a special greeting to those watching online or joining us on the podcast. We are so glad that you are here too. Now, the scripture that Rich read for us this morning comes from the book of Revelation. Now, before your mind starts wandering to Kirk Cameron and the Left Behind series, or wondering what about the end times I'm going to talk about in this sermon, stop right there. Because, yes, this passage that was just read, it has to do with the future, but it also has huge implications for us today. And this morning, we're going to look at three main points from this scripture that give us hope for the future, as well as hope for our present circumstances. I just got finished with a condo remodel. I've lived in the condo for 10 years, and it was in some dire need of updating. So I saved some money and paid for a few upgrades. And it was out with the old, my pink oak cabinets and these chipped tiles and lots of mildew and stained linoleum. And it was in with the new, white pristine cabinets with black and brass handles and freshly tiled floors with clean grout lines. I played the role of project manager for the remodel, and I handpicked each new fixture, tile, and faucet to my liking. To say I was highly invested in this project is a bit of an understatement. And when it was finally done, I just sat on my couch and looked around. It was such a beautiful thing to see it finally done. And I decided right then and there that I'm never going to do a remodel again, <laughs> and I'm going to live in my condo forever. I'm never moving. Now, this would never happen, but if someone were to offer me a trade, a brand new, never been lived in before condo, for my condo, which was originally built in the 90s, I think I would have to turn them down. And I know that sounds silly, but let me explain. I've just been so invested in making this space a home that to me, starting over completely doesn't sound all that attractive. And God has a similar mindset with us, his creation. God is invested in us. God loves us, handpicks us, adopts us, chooses us. He calls us his own. So when we read the scripture where God says in Revelation, I am making all things new, this doesn't mean that God is just going to swap us out and start over completely because God isn't interested in that. God isn't making all new things but he is making all things new, which is our first main point. God isn't making all new things, but is making all things new. With us, God's creation, God is not in the demolition business, but he is in the remodel business. God doesn't take a look at you and say, whoa, I got to start completely over with you. But he does say, yeah, I can work with this. I can work with you. As imperfect people, we are in a constant state of remodel. And God is the God of our remodel. He'll make the leak in our roof stop dripping. He is the bleach in our whites that make them whiter and brighter. And God invites us into this. And he says, see, 
I am making all things new. No project is too big or too small for God. So what does this look like for God to remodel us? What does it look like for God to be making all things new in our lives? Well, when my condo was being worked on, my contractor found some mold underneath the tiles that he ripped out, which he got rid of before replacing those tiles with new tiles. And similarly, when God comes near to us, and we experience his presence and him making all things new in our lives, this doesn't just make us pretty on the outside, but it more often than not, it involves ripping out that mold and dealing with what's going on with us on the inside. God's remodel plan for our lives involves so much more than just making us pretty on the outside. During the holiday season, I met with a young adult woman who confessed to me that she was struggling a lot with loneliness. She's in the aftermath of college, and that's meant that a lot of her friends have moved away, and it's meant that her role in the workplace is taking up a little bit more time and energy. And this has left her with little time for social interaction, and it's been really hard for her to meet new people. So she tearfully told me how hard this has been. And as I listened to her, and cried with her a bit, I was able to give her just a small nugget of hope. Sometimes that's all you need, just a little glimmer of hope. Because I too have struggled with loneliness. In fact, I struggled with loneliness at the exact same time in my life that she is in now. And I was able to tell her that though she may feel lonely, she's not alone in her loneliness. Furthermore, God is with her in her hurt. He's with her still. So God is remodeling us and making us new, but we are not just his projects. We are also his tools. Because I had had this history of working through loneliness, I could speak hope into this young woman's life, telling her that it's okay. I've been there too. God uses us to help bring others into the newness that he invites us to. And with this young adult, God didn't just hear her heart's prayer and poof, magically give her new friends and a new boyfriend to ease her lonely heart, because God didn't do that. He doesn't just make new things, but he wanted to make all things new in her life. And that meant reassuring her and giving her hope. So the newness that God has for us is good news indeed especially when we live in a culture that is completely obsessed with the new. We buy new clothes. We buy new cars, new toothbrushes, new socks. We receive new haircuts. We upgrade our phones. We try out new diets. We celebrate the new year. We receive new jobs. Then we get new promotions. But the problem with all of these new things is that they soon become old which is the reason I can't wear the new polo that I got for the first day of school in seventh grade because it's old now and it won't fit. <laughs> it's newness faded with the next school year and thankfully so did that hairstyle. <laughs> so it's no wonder why God is saying in Revelation, see, I am making all things new because our new things are constantly getting old. But when God says this, he's actually getting at something much, much bigger. Which brings us to our second point. God's newness only gets newer. 
The newness that God is referring to in this passage is so much more than the new that we use to describe a new car or a new haircut. Because this kind of newness, God's kind of newness, it never gets old, it only gets newer. Now think about that for a second because this is a difficult concept for us to understand. All the things that you have labeled new in your life, they've eventually gotten old. But the newness that God has for us is different. It only gets newer. So let me explain. In the original Greek, there are two different words that can mean new. Neos and kainos. Neos is the kind of new that we're used to. It means young or something that has just happened or appeared on the scene. It implies a certain amount of duration. Like my polo shirt in seventh grade, it was only new for a matter of weeks before I'd washed it enough times that it started to fade and get old. That's neos. But kainos is different. Kainos has to do with a new class or new quality of something. And unlike neos, kainos isn't talking about a duration or how young something is. But it's talking about a quality apart from its youth. And it's kainos that's used in the Revelation passage that we read. It's used four times. And God, the oldest one that I know, is talking about making all things new. So this makes sense then that the newness that he's talking about bringing has nothing to do with age, but has everything to do with overruling the old and doing away with expiration dates completely. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, explains it this way. In God, things become fresher and fresher, newer and newer every moment, brighter and brighter, stronger and stronger, more absorbing than they were a second ago, more vivid, more coherent, more whole, more beautiful. That is what the Bible says God is like. In God, there can be kainos without neos. In God, there can be a quality of newness that never ends or never gets old. God's newness only gets newer. So again, let's pause there for a moment and let this sink in because it's a bit of a foreign concept to us. It sounds weird. How can this be? How can something new get newer? And to illustrate this point a bit, I'm going to compare and contrast two books. All right, to all the kids in the audience, how many of you have read this book, Monster Trucks? Anybody? If you've read it, raise your hand. I see at least one or two hands. It's a good book. I totally recommend it. What about, okay, again, to all the kids, how many of you have read this book? This is the Bible. Anybody read this book? Okay. Awesome. So we're going to compare these two books. So the first, like I just said, I borrowed this from my nephew's. This is Monster Trucks. The second book is the Bible. Monster Trucks is a newer book. I think my nephews got it about six months ago. The Bible, in contrast, it's old. This book has been around a while. And I've read Monster Trucks to my nephews probably a dozen times or so. And similarly, I've read the Bible that many times, if not more. So one book is new. One book is old. One book is Neos. And one book is the opposite of Neos. But when I read Monster Trucks to my nephews, nothing new sticks out to me anymore. It may be a new book, but I'll confess, the material is getting a little old. I know what the next page is going to say before I even turn it, and frankly, so do my nephews. But the Bible is different. The Bible 
is completely different. There are times when I can read a passage of scripture that I've read since I was a little kid and something new will stand out to me that I hadn't seen there before. That kind of new, that is kainos. That's a newness that continues to get new. This Advent season, I reread through the Christmas story, starting with Luke 1. And as I began to read through the story, I prayed to God, God, help me see something new. And before I even got to the end of Luke chapter 1, a chapter I'd read and reread probably a hundred times, God had answered my prayer. Something new stuck out to me that I had never seen there before. And just to refresh your memory, this is the chapter where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And he gives her the news that she will bear a son and she will name him Jesus. And at the same time, the angel tells Mary about her cousin Elizabeth's late in life pregnancy. And in a way, it's like the angel Gabriel is telling Mary, is giving her a way to test it out, to test out this miraculous news that she has just heard. And even more so, it's as if the angel is giving her a community, giving her a mentor, somebody who is a few more months along in their pregnancy. And after the angel leaves Mary, scripture says that Mary went with haste to her cousin. That's something in that chapter that I, that's always been there, but I'd never seen it that way before. That kind of new thing that's been there all along, that is kainos without neos. That's a new kind of quality with no expiration date. And it's just a picture of what God's talking about when he's making all things new. This quality of newness is something that we will someday experience in fullness and we presently wait for in hope, but it's also something that we can experience today. And that brings us to our third and final point. There is a newness to come and a newness that we have access to now. So the beginning of the scripture that we read talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And if we keep that kainos concept in mind, it would read something like this. Then I saw a new quality of heaven and a new quality of earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new quality of Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God. God's future plan is for the renewal of all things. His master project for heaven and earth isn't that they'll be demolished, but that they will be joined. They will be remodeled, redeemed, and renewed. God isn't doing away with them because God isn't about making new things, but he is bringing them together as one, making all things new. And in bringing them together, it will be a place where God will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. In our future, our oldness will be done away with. Our aging, decaying, and dying, and all the things that bring us pain now will be gone. And in its place will be that new quality of life. And how is this possible? Because God will be in our midst. God will again, like he did with Jesus, come and make this place his home with us. And not just for a season, but this time permanently. Emmanuel, God with us. 
N.T. Wright says that what God did in Jesus, coming to an unknowing world and an unwelcoming people, he was doing on a cosmic scale. He is coming to live forever in our midst, a healing, comforting, celebrating presence. And that, my friends, is our ultimate future hope. When the one who sits on the throne will come and be in our midst and live with us forever. And many of us faithfully live with that ultimate future hope in mind. But some of us have forgotten that that hope also includes a hope for us today. There is a newness that we have access to now. God says, see, I am making all things new. And the word to pay close attention to there is the word making. God doesn't say, at some point in the future, I'm gonna make things new. He also doesn't say, I've already made things new. But he does say, I am making all things new. People, this is a present progressive verb that's used. God is communicating to us about our future and our present hope. So this means that while we wait for the day when every tear will be wiped away, we can also experience some of that now. Which is why the very first time I heard God's voice clearly, God didn't speak to me about the future, but he spoke to me about my present. God could have said, hold on, Annie, I know you're going through a hard time, but hold on, one day things will get better. God could have said that, but he didn't. God said to me in a still, small voice, I love you, Annie, and I'm proud of you, giving me hope for today as well as hope for tomorrow. Because our future matters to God, but so does our present. Now, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page before I close us up. Some of us might be sitting there convinced that God will do these things, that that will be heaven someday, because that's what we've grown up to believe. But some of us might be sitting there not 100% convinced that we can experience this heavenly newness now, because how can this be possible when I'm surrounded by broken relationships? Or how can it be possible when I'm going through a divorce or have lost a child? Or how can this be possible in all of the tragedy that I face or when I am so incredibly lonely? How can that be possible? Have you ever felt peace during a time that was anything but peaceful? Or felt a calm come over you during a traumatic incident? Or overcome a lifelong addiction that you never thought you could do? That, that is God's unexplainable peace, that is God's presence, And that is his newness coming to help us overcome. When I was in my mid-20s, I struggled a lot with fear. Now, I haven't been always a fearful person, but during my mid-20s, it was almost as if fear took, uh, planted in my life and then just started to sprout in every single area of my life. I was in a relationship that I was afraid would end, I was afraid to be alone. I started to become afraid that I was in the wrong career. I was afraid of what others thought of me. And to top it off, during this time, I got into a bicycle accident, and then I was afraid to ride my bike, something that I loved to do. Fear was beginning to paralyze and suffocate me, and I couldn't take it anymore. I knew I wasn't acting like myself. And so I started to pray, and bit by bit, God helped me to overcome my fears. And it did not happen overnight. It took some time. It didn't happen overnight, just like me being afraid of everything didn't happen overnight. 
But bit by bit, my fear started to unravel. And months later, I had this aha moment where I thought, I'm not afraid anymore. My current situations had not changed one bit, but my fear had vanished. God had made me new. So where are you crying out for God to make you new? Maybe you struggle with fear consuming you like I had. Whether it's fear or loneliness or brokenness or something else, go to the throne of God and pray, make me new. And as we prepare for the new year of 2014, resolve to make God's newness a part of your new year. Instead of trying to remodel your life with a new diet or something else, go to God and ask him to remodel your life. Maybe it's praying the prayer, God, show me something new. Or maybe it's allowing God to use you as a tool helping somebody else. Or maybe it's simply crying out to him so desperate for his presence. Whatever it is, you have access to this now. We have a future hope and a present hope. Emmanuel, God with us. He is making all things new. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your promise that you are with us today, with us tomorrow, with us forever. And God, as we go, may we be a people that lives and breathes and believes in Emmanuel, in God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are you, God of all creation. You spoke in the beginning and all things came to be. You spoke and your word came to live with us full of grace and truth. As we listen, may our ears be attuned to you. Speak to us, O Lord. May all we hear lead us to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, welcome to all of you and welcome to those who are watching online. Now, one of my favorite albums to listen to uh, in the month of December is The Carpenter's Christmas Portrait, which came out in 1978, before I was born. Um, and listening to it steeps me in nostalgia and schmaltzy fun. And in my opinion, one of the best songs to showcase Karen Carpenter's voice is I'll Be Home for Christmas. This song quickly became a holiday standard after being recorded by Bing Crosby during World War II, a time when a lot of American soldiers were abroad and separated from their loved ones. There's something so resonant about the song. For Christmas, I will be home. Home, source of comfort and love. Home, place of safety and rest. The song concludes that I will be home if only in my dreams. Dreaming, of course, is crucial. We yearn for something and imagine it in our minds, and yet oftentimes the reality does not match our expectation and our anticipation. As I'm sure many of you can verify, the holidays can be really stressful, and home actually is a place of miscommunication, dysfunction, anxiety, grief, and loneliness. Even for some of us who have more stable home lives, the home for Christmas sung about can feel elusive. We are longing for something that cannot quite yet be fulfilled. Home is not necessarily a geographic location. I remember when I was 25 years old and traveling overseas. It had been a hard trip, and I was frayed emotionally. 
I felt really embarrassed by my need because I thought I should be a grown-up and independent, but honestly, I was so relieved when I finally met my mom in an airport in the United Kingdom. To be hugged by her, to be embraced by someone who loves me really well, was home, even though we were thousands of miles from Seattle. The physical presence of my parent was enough to conjure home. Those of you who are younger today can more readily agree that when you fall off a bicycle or a scooter, you desperately want a parent to come, and come over and kiss your scraped knees and wipe away your tears. When you don't make the basketball team or fail the um, math quiz, you are impatient to have someone comfort you, to assure you that you are okay, to be with you and to sympathize with your heartbreak. It may be harder for adults to admit it, but it's still true for us. We are longing for home. We are aching for the one who loves us and cares for us. John writes in Revelation 21 of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new home. Those to whom he is writing are exhausted and worried since at this time the church is undergoing serious persecution, experiencing random hostile outbreaks of violence against believers. Their world was falling apart. Home, safety, deliverance, security, care may have felt intangible, impossible to them. And John, the writer of Revelation himself, was in exile, imprisoned on a Greek island for his faith, far away from home and community. In the midst of this chaos and darkness, here is John's vision. Here is their and our hope for the future. We will come home. The God who created us and gave us this longing for home will be the one to fulfill it. Our home will be God himself. Now, I confess that on the whole, the book of Revelation is so confusing and intimidating to me. And I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. But this particular passage in Revelation is like a deep intake of fresh air. We hear the very voice of God speaking, announcing that the Lord is making all things new that God is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And we say, yes, amen, may it be so. In view of the richness of this text, I want to make a couple of observations about what God is all about based on what we learn in Revelation 21. The scripture teaches us that one, God is about relationship, and two, God is about renewal. As a result, since we are God's children, We are to be in the relating and renewing business too, heralding the new life and abundant joy that Jesus brings. So, God is about relationship. The triune God is inherently relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in relationship with one another. And since we bear God's image, we are likewise relational. Something that I learned really well from Reverend Mike Johnson, who will be speaking next Monday about relational ministry here at Bell Prez at 7 o'clock in UC 303. Please come. <laughs> God created us to be in relationship with God and with one another. But we are longing for some kind of relating that cannot quite be fulfilled yet. The wild rock pigeons have an innate innate ability to return to their nest and mate, even finding their way back from distant places they had never visited before, which is why they are called homing pigeons. I wonder if there is a part of all of us that feel like homing pigeons, journeying long and far, 
forever checking our internal compass, innately seeking a return home. We desire to be close to God, to have physical, emotional, spiritual proximity to the one who created us. And the beauty of Revelation 21 is the promise that we will find our home in God. According to verse 3, in the New Jerusalem, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. This verse makes me think about the incarnation, especially because it's the Christmas season when we are celebrating the marvel and the mystery of Jesus being born, Jesus, God incarnate. God chose to put on flesh and to enter into sin and pain and brokenness. Jesus coming to earth, being born as a humble human being, shows us that God desires to be and is Emmanuel, God with us. My favorite Eugene Peterson paraphrase from the message is John 1.14. And you guys have heard it before, but it's so good I'm going to repeat it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The Greek word for moving into the neighborhood is the verb skenao, which means to dwell, to reside, to abide. And is closely related to the uh, noun skene used in Revelation 21.3, which means God's dwelling place, God's tent tabernacle, home. And John exclaims, look, the home, the skene of God is among mortals. In the new earth, God comes to us. The Lord tabernacles with us. God sets up his tent among us. And there's nothing temporary about this tent. Skene refers to God's very presence. Our future will be characterized by God's nearness, by direct, unbroken fellowship with the Lord. The whole I'll be home for Christmas yearning will finally be realized, and it won't just be for December 25th, but for all of eternity. Some people may assume that on the last day, humans will be taken up into heaven, but according to Revelation 21, it's not us going up, it's God coming down to earth, taking up residence among us. God moves into our neighborhood making his home with men and women and children. All of our longing finds its fulfillment in God's presence. Now, as you heard, I am serving in the missions department this year, and so it gives me great joy to catch that verse 3 talks about how the mortals will be God's peoples. It's plural, which testifies to the promise that every tribe and every tongue will be included in God's kingdom. We trust that God's peoples will hail from every corner of the earth, that every language and culture will bring, God to glo- uh, bring glory to God the Father. God made us with enormous creativity to be diverse peoples, and differences in kin, ethnicities, and nations will continue, redeemed in the new earth. We will praise the Lord, not through uniformity, but through our diversity. We are God's peoples. And note that John's vision for our future is not a garden that has autonomous individuals walking about in seclusion, detached from relationship. No, it's not a return to some romanticized Eden. Rather, our future home is a city, the New Jerusalem. Cities require relationship because they are full of people, people who must cooperate regarding family, sorry, housing, transportation, sanitation, employment. And I grew up in the city of Seattle, so this makes me really excited that we are going to be in a city. 
As we look forward in anticipation of this new heaven and new earth, we are compelled to anticipate relationship. God will make his home with us and we will be in relationship with him. And his home will be in a city filled with peoples and we will be in relationship with one another. And when John talks about this new Jerusalem, he doesn't have big buildings or holy landmarks in, in mind. The city is not defined by any physical or regional distinctions, but by a distinction of relationship. The new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, adorned in beauty and, the, and in the knowledge of being the object of God's love. Therefore, I would argue that the value of Belprez is not because of its buildings or parking lot or close proximity to downtown Bellevue or even its program, staff, or size. The value of Belpress, of all of us, is found in our being the beloved of God. We are loved deeply, wholly, relentlessly, unconditionally by our Lord. We find our identity in this. God delights in us. Bridal language is not the only relationship John draws upon. Verse 7 declares that we will share in an extraordinary inheritance if we persevere, that the Lord will be our God and we will be God's children. The mixing of metaphors that we would be both spouse and child doesn't seem to bother John at all. Indeed, he doesn't even seem to detect a contradiction. The multiple metaphors seem necessary for him to signal, to gesture towards understanding the level of uh, intimacy we will all experience with our relational God someday. As God's children, as God's bride, intimacy with God will no longer be elusive, incomplete. We will find our completion, our satisfaction, as God dwells with us. So, in addition to being all about relationship, God is all about renewal. We are in a season where the emphasis is on the new. For those of you who are younger, perhaps you recently received a new book, a new toy, a new gaming system, a new phone. For those of you who are older, perhaps you received a new car, a new outfit, a new set of clubs, a new television show to binge watch. And it's not just Christmas time that reminds us of our desire for the new. Throughout the year, it could be a new kitchen, a new house, a new job, a new knee or hip, a new romantic relationship. New, new, new. Now, we are a bag of mixed motives, and it takes discernment to figure out what is uh, conformity to God's heart and will and what is conformity to our consumerist culture. But instinctively, we feel the need for change. We look around and we see how broken the world is. Poverty, war, conflict minerals, environmental uh, devastation, and the list goes on. And we look inside and we see how broken we are, living in communities marked by fear, greed, hostility, envy, and pride. Instinctively, we feel the need to be changed. We recognize that life as it is, is inadequate. We are in desperate need of what can only be called a new creation. Mercifully, God promises to never leave humans or the world as they are. In Revelation 21, we see that the God who created is the God who recreates. God is renewing creation. John tries to describe what is largely inconceivable in our present state, and it's easier to describe it 
and what it is not than what it is. And so he gives a little catalog of that which will cease to be. Death, distress, wailing, mourning will be com- completely absent. The old order of things will pass away entirely. The debilitating effects of sin will be abolished. Tragedy and illness and evil will be banished forever. Sorrow will be eliminated. Extraordinarily, scripture declares that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God's love for us is personal, deep, parental. And there can be enormous pressure on us for, to hide behind a veneer of self-sufficiency and worldly success, especially in Bellevue. But even here, families are hurting, reeling from addictions, mental illness, abuse, anger, divorce, unforgiveness, and the prison of perfectionism. For too many, home is not a place of love, safety, or care. Some of us feel like we are barely staying afloat, unable to keep up the charade of health and peace and stability. Some of us don't have family to visit this time of year, and Bell Press is the closest thing we have to a family. We are intimidated, lonely, and fearful, desperate to be made well, to be reconciled, and to be loved. In our deep sorrow and brokenness, we cry out, and mercifully, God hears us and gives us this promise. Our maker will personally offer us comfort and healing. Our savior will redeem this broken, battered, fallen world. The Lord will make all things aright once more. Our pain will not have the final word. God will wipe the tears from our eyes. At the conclusion of the movie, The Wizard of Oz, Glinda instructs Dorothy to click her heels together and declare, there's no place like home. In the chanting, the repeating of there's no place like home, Dorothy is suddenly transported back to Kansas and reunited with her family. It may be tempting for us to approach John's vision this way, assuming that one day we will be instantly transported to perfect and immediate wish fulfillment. But not so. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into our messy world proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near. Indeed, with Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking in. As, Jesus, sorry, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. What began 2,000 years ago continues today. Jesus' kingdom, this new creation, is here, and it's coming still. It is visible, and yet to be made even more visible through our participation in God's good purposes right now. We are to use our creativity and our talents to join God in recreating the world as it was meant to be. That means getting our hands in the dirt, caring for the environment, volunteering our time and resources, loving our neighbor as ourselves. That means offering forgiveness, seeking reconciliation in our relationships, living with integrity, seeking justice for the widow and the orphan, and having our minds renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, worship, and scripture. It's not a matter of having ruby red shoes and chanting a formula. It's about having eyes to see and ears to hear how God is calling you to join in the divine mission and to usher in God's new creation now and here.
The Christian hope is not merely to die and go to heaven, as some people have mistakenly assumed. The Christian hope, according to the Bible, is for restoration here on earth. Jesus' victory over the grave, his bodily resurrection, is a marker that things have changed radically. This world is not going to be discarded. We will not be discarded. God's plan of salvation has us here on the ground, transformed, redeemed. That means our bodies matter. Our relationships matter. The grace, peace, justice, joy, and healing that we are working for in the present matters and will continue to bear fruit in the future. And although we get glimpses of this new creation currently, and there will be some continuity between the creation we know and the new, nevertheless, the new creation is going to be drastically different. It's hard to fathom it right now. The Chronicles of Narnia is a great series that I was late in coming to. I read the entire seven books the summer after my first year at Whitman College when I was 20 years old. C.S. Lewis wrote it for children, but it's so theologically rich and beautiful that uh, it works for all ages. And I know many of you have it on your shelves at home, so I encourage you to go home and reread them in 2014. In The Last Battle, which is the final book in the series, Lewis attempts to describe how different and amazing this new creation will be. Near the end of the story, Aslan brings Lucy and co. through a door into what seems to be a new world. They start venturing west, and as they look around and about, marveling at this new place, they are also puzzling over it. It looked familiar, and yet the colors are more vibrant and intense, more colorful, and the mountains seem more magnificent, more daunting. There were a couple of landmarks that were like Narnia, and yet they were different. Lord Diggory suggested these mountains looked more like the real thing. He says, listen, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. Lewis writes, It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Brihihi, come further up, come further in. People of Belprez, I invite you to reflect this week. Where is your home? Where are you seeking refuge? In your 401k retirement account, your job, your family, your friends? When problems occur, where do you turn? Come home. As God dwells with you, you will find your real country at last. You will belong. Let's take seriously God's promises of homecoming, for his word is trustworthy and true. Come home. Worship the one who loved us enough to send Jesus to dwell with us. Boldly enact, embody the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Join the one who is in the process of making all things new. The one who is all about relationship and all about renewal. O Holy Spirit, bring revival. Make all things new in our relationships with each other, with you, God, with ourselves, and with all of creation. Help us and the entire world to come home to you. Amen.